This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Our podcast, Spirit Matters Talk, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Welcome to the show. Thank you, everyone out there that's made a contribution to help keep us on the air. And uh, anybody that uh, would like to be amongst those that contribute, uh, go to spiritmatterstalk.com and information is there. Uh, We have a, a wonderful guest back on the show. Uh, Dr. Roger Waltz. He is a medical doctor and a PhD. He is a professor of psychiatry, philosophy, and anthropology at the University of California. His research focuses on the topics of meditation, psychological well-being, wisdom, and our global crises. His books include Essential Spirituality, The Seven Central Practices, The World of Shamanism, and The World's Great Wisdom. And his research and writings have received over 20 national and international awards. He is a student, researcher, and teacher of contemplative traditions and an authorized Lama in Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, Roger, thank you so very much for taking the time to come back on the show with us. Well, thanks so much for the opportunity. It's uh, fun to dialogue with you both. Great to have you back, Roger. I will tell our listeners... um, that we interviewed Roger in the early days of the podcast. And if you'd like to hear about his interesting journey in uh, medical medicine and psychology and uh, spirituality, I commend you to that first interview where he uh, spoke about his history. But we want to stick to the present today and Roger's involved with some very uh, interesting and new work. Let me begin, Roger, by asking, um, as I said, you've been on the, this, you've been a leading figure, uh, not to flat, overly flatter you, but you've been a leading figure in this important intersection of Western psychology and the meditative traditions of the East. Um, you've followed the research, you've done research for decades. What in the last, in the most recent period of time has impressed you most uh, in the research findings? What is new? What's exciting? Well, I think to my mind, the most exciting finding in uh, contemplative practices and related disciplines is the recognition that adult psychological development can continue much further than we thought. And that psychologists now beginning to map out the stages of adult development along a whole line of areas from, from say moral development, to cognitive intellectual development, to emotional development, to motivational development, faith development, and more and more. And I think that's really revolutionary because we used to think that the mind more or less stopped growing when the body stopped growing. And yet we now have very clear evidence from a variety of fields that psychological maturation can continue through clear demarcated stages far beyond conventional levels. And what we thought of the ceiling of human possibilities is really looking more like a a form of collective developmental rest. And that has enormous implications because it it puts in very uh, experimental and concrete terms the idea that there are potentials available to us, developmental potentials, that all of us probably have to a certain degree, those potentials to certain degrees, 
but in our culture, it takes some, some work and some practice mm -hmm. to realize. Uh, Roger, um, you, you've been at it for quite a while in, in psychiatry and clinical psychology, those fields. And I'm going to guess that when you were a, a medical student, when you first started your practice, the uh, receptivity uh, in, your, uh, in, 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 in your profession was probably not nearly as uh, great or as open as it is now. And has that been, uh, and obviously you've been part of that uh, growing acceptance uh, in, in these fields. Uh, and, uh, I, but I'm wondering, has it been in the last 30, 40 years, you see it as a gradual growth, uh, a, a, a gradual growth toward greater acceptability and understanding of, of contemplative traditions of uh, the human psychology being able to develop beyond what we thought it could develop, uh, or were there one or two things that happened that really accelerated that level of acceptance? Well, probably a bit, a bit of both. And I should acknowledge that you mentioned that you know, 30, 40 years ago, the, uh, the psychological, psychiatric, medical profession wasn't as open to contemplative practices. Well, I was one of the people who wasn't so open to it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was all, all spirituality was nuts. <laughs> and the idea that I would be <laughs> decades first in the, in the future would be on a podcast like this right. would have sent shivers down my spine, but I had the very good fortune of first moving from Australia, which was even more conservative, uh, to California, which is <laughs> not conservative, <laughs> and having available to me the richness of this area, including the opportunity, which was really important for me, of being able to go into my own psychotherapy. And that was what really opened the inner universe up to me. And I realized that there was an inner universe as vast and mysterious as the outer. And I'd spent my entire life, it felt like living on the top six inches of a wave on top of an ocean I didn't even know existed. And I think I was part of a, a larger wave of things that were happening. But this was a time in the, in the first and the 60s, of course, there were the introduction of psychedelics. But then in the um, late 60s, 70, there was the introduction of contemplative practices from the East into the West. That was a major, uh, major impact. Uh, another one was the revival of Western contemplative practices and, and the recognition that, oh, yes, our own traditions have these practices right. and these worldviews and understandings, but they've been hidden partly because you know, these practices have always been the, the purview of a, a minority, but also because uh, Western spiritual, Western religion is not look kindly on spirituality in many ways. And uh, particularly when we think of institutionalized Christianity, but of course institutionalized Islam as well, even Judaism, all three of the monotheisms have had, uh, for the most part, a dim view of contemplatives and their claims to, for example, uh, unite with uh, or be, have direct, direct communion with the divine and to even merge with the divine in some cases. Those have been viewed as heretical. So, so all these things have played their, played their role. And uh, I think another thing that really shifted things was the sheer amount of research on contemplative practices, particularly meditation. There are now, I would guess, about 8,000 research studies out there. And, you know, no one can keep up with it. I certainly can't. But it's really, it did not tell us, it still hasn't told us much about the the practices and how better to do them. 
but it did serve to legitimize the practices and, and for better or for worse, you know, the Western, Western science glommed onto the fact, oh, they're brain changes, it must be real. So, uh, problems there, but still, it served a function. Well, you mentioned problems. Um, one, I remember the early days of the research. In fact, I was a subject in Herbert Benson's first study. So um, I'm a data point. But um, <laughs> back in those days when they would find something correlated with a contemplative practice, it would come to define what the practice is and is for. So it became about changing brain waves. Right. And that's how they defined it. Is has it become more sophisticated? The, are the people involved in the research these days and the people uh, reviewing the research, are they more discerning? Do they recognize uh, the, the larger picture of what meditative practices are for and uh, what they can accomplish? Do they recognize the differences among those practices? And whereas in the past, they used to mix them all together. How, has it grown in uh, that kind of awareness? Yes, I would say there'd been, been an increasing sophistication and understanding of the contemplative practices by researchers. And for the most part, there's still a ways to go. Taking your last question first, has there been a differentiation among the practices recognizing they're not all the same? Yes, although it hasn't gone terribly far yet. But yes, we have data, for example, on differential effects of, say, TM as opposed to mindfulness, as opposed to concentration practices. Um, the, your point about the way in which uh, measurable effects, such as brainwaves, come to or define the, the uh, value of the practices uh, still has a certain ring to it. And in some ways, you know, there was, uh, for a while, there was much more information about heart rate than there was about heart opening. <laughs> and so that still continues. However, one interesting shift has been, there's a growing number of people who have doing research who are themselves practitioners that I think opens them uh, opens people to yeah. a recognition that, uh, that there's much more to these practices than can be measured As the right. saying goes uh, you know not everything that can that can be counted really counts right. and, and that's certainly true of the contemplative practice I would say that one of the lacks is still there hasn't been a lot of research on advanced practitioners so for the most part, it's still looking at, at the very valuable effects that people who do, uh, say, a, a few weeks of practice or a few months, maybe a couple of years can benefit, can get. You know, if, I, if I could ask you, Roger, please. along those lines, uh, what would you anticipate you might look for or find in those that are... Uh, advanced in their practice of many, many years, maybe, and very deep in their practice. What are some of the things, areas that we haven't looked at that we should look at or uh, areas where we've seen change that we might see greater change, both subjectively, both and in terms of, you know, uh, uh, physiological changes? Well, I think each of you could answer the question as well as I could about what are some of the, some of the experiential changes that occur in more advanced practices. 
but certainly it's clear that as people progress, they move from, say, if we look at, say, the, say the Buddhist practices of, of mindfulness, they move from resting just to keep a, a few seconds of the mind uh, paying attention and actually aware of what's going on and then getting lost in fantasies to it becoming more or less automatic until eventually there can be continuous uh, uh, mindfulness. If we look at, say, the studies on awareness, um, say, well, one of the advanced practices, uh, you know, from your traditions is, uh, is uh, lucid dreaming, being able to be aware that you're dreaming and then extending that into non-lucid sleep. So now that there can be continuous awareness throughout sleep and continuous awareness through the day. Uh, uh, so it becomes a continuous recognition that all this has occurred, that there's no loss of awareness or continuity both day and night, which is obviously a very, very uh, advanced practice. I think, uh, let's see, Phil, would that be uh, cosmic consciousness in TM? Yeah, it would sound like it. An aspect of cosmic consciousness, I would yeah. say that, yeah. But yeah, but when you say throughout the day and the night, uh, uh, I ultimately trained along those lines, that that's what uh, they would be. And I, I know that actually, They've been doing research on people that uh, uh, claim to have those experiences. And I think they are, I, I couldn't tell you the detail of what they're finding, uh, mostly in, in regard to brain activity, but they are finding some unique. Well, stuff. they're quite interesting fi findings, uh, Dennis. And what they show is the slow wave rhythms of deep sleep, but superimposed on those are more rapid rhythms associated with wakefulness. So it's actually, it is a kind of uh, alert uh, sleep, right. just as is claimed. And, and most of that research has been done on TM practitioners, not all of it, but most of it, yeah. Roger, I, I, before we drop the subject of uh, the research, I want to come back to the first thing you said when we asked what was so ex uh, most exciting. You talked about uh, the discovery that there are levels of development beyond what we thought was normal or possible. Um, are the, the, the criteria or the, the, the parameters to define those levels of development, are they well accepted? Are the uh, procedures uh, reliable in the scientific sense? Is there any uh, suspicion that people doing that research want to find higher states of development and so are in fact constructing studies so they, they can find it. Is how, how acceptable are those uh, procedures for uncovering higher levels of development? Well, it's a new field and it's really only emerged in the last few decades. And we should contrast this, Phil and Dennis, with, with uh, contemplative practices. With contemplative practices, we talk about stages of development and contemplation, but those are actually successive states of consciousness that are mm. being cultivated. And what we're talking about here in Western psychology is the recognition that not only states can change, but actually the, the kind of almost the, the operating system of the mind can change. And so that you, we not at each successive stage of development, and we can talk about childhood development just as well as adult development here, at each successive stage, the background processing 
of experience and input and creation of self-sense, etc., radically shifts. And we know that, we see that in children, that's very obvious. Uh, the, cha- the changes in adults are more subtle, but they are, they're definitely there. So although the field is new, there's a significant body of research that demonstrates, for example, in moral development, people go from pre-conventional, which is very egocentric, to uh, conventional in which they operate out of what is, you know, what's my culture say, what's, you know, you know what's good and bad, etc., to a more post-conventional or individuative reflective where people begin to actually reflect and decide, is it really true that, you know, that men are, you know, should be, you know, deserve better placement in the world, blah, 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 blah. So many things that were conventionally accepted only a few decades ago. The first people to question those were people at post-conventional moral levels. Right. Um, that's pretty well established. There are other things like, but, but the further you go in development, the smaller number of people, there's a so-called, what's called pyramid of development, that the higher, the further the development, the smaller the number of people that reach it. So when you look at the more remarkable, or truly post, post-conventional, let's call them trans-conventional stages, there the data begins to thin out. And so that's not so well established. <laughs> uh, Roger, I wanted to mention to our listeners and to our viewers, because we are our YouTube channel now also, uh, that uh, along with John Dupuy, uh, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, uh, you co-host the podcast, Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, which is among the top uh, 5% of English language podcasts and has listeners in over uh, 100 countries. Tell us about that. Yes, and tell us how you got all those listeners. We're jealous. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, we have people in about 50 countries, but we're, we're missing 50 countries somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I suspect a number of those hundred countries are a handful of people. So, yeah. so uh, let's see. Yes. Well, thanks for thanks for mentioning the podcast. We'll have, we'll have that the website. How to get to that? How to find right. that podcast? We'll have that posted up. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. And and indeed, we share very similar aims as your podcast. Your your work on spirit matters is uh, that's a central part of what we're interested in. We were concerned, you know, you look around the web, web and, you know, the, the quality of what's on there, that with a depth of analysis and discussion right. is very disturbing. So we were interest, really interested in bringing greater depth to an exploration of particularly spirituality and the application of uh, spiritual depth to the great issues of our time. So we focus on bringing people, uh, probably a significant overlap with your guests, actually, uh, people who have real contemplative depth and tend to be looking at how to apply that to the, the issues of our time. So it's really, we're really trying to bring some depth in. And of course, we also look at, you know, uh, have the practitioners look at contemplative practice themselves. And again, there's a big overlap with your work there. Roger, um, the, the interest that you're podcast has in the um, the intersection of we, we could say spirituality or uh, contemplative practice and the issues of our time um, it's one of the reasons uh, 
we wanted to have you on when we when we saw about the podcast. This is a terribly important uh, subject, and we've had other people on talking about it. And Dennis and I have been concerned about it for a long time. Do you see in your interaction with the spiritual communities a growing sense of that we do have some responsibility? That it's not all about in our own personal inner development and that we are also uh, citizens. Is, is there a shift that is discernible? Oh, I think there clearly is. There's, there's been, in my experience anyway, just a growing recognition of the enormity and urgency of the crises we're facing. And that if we look, take a big picture, you know, we have this godlike technology in this uh, Paleolithic brains, and and we have a mismatch between between the our power and our, our wisdom and other other spiritual virtues. We've certainly sort of become like the, the sorcerer's apprentice. We have enormous enormous power, so we become we become nuclear giants and technological wizards. We still remain ethical infants and wisdom children at best, right. and so clearly we have an imbalance between our psychological, spiritual maturation and health and the technological powers. And our technological power is so great that what we that the state of the world now is really a reflection of the state of our individual collective minds. And so what we call our global problems are actually and global and social problems are actually uh, expressions of our individual and collective psychological and spiritual dysfunction. So I think there's a growing recognition of this and a growing sense of uh, the, qu the question that all of us are facing of what can I do? And that I think is becoming one of the columns of, of our time for contemporary practitioners looking at, okay, well, all these practices are valuable, and yes, and there's enormous value in in doing them and cultivating our heart and mind and soul and spirit. And how can we apply it so we preserve this wonderful planet and, and heal our divide, divided societies? In, in the world of uh, medicine that you also function in, uh, psychiatry in particular. Uh, are, are your colleagues fairly receptive to uh, to your work, and do you have a lot of colleagues that uh, that are working with you, or do you do you feel some isolation that uh, you know you're you're hoping and uh, that uh, they catch up with your thinking? Well, there's always a you know some pe oh. some people in the medical world who who share our concerns, uh, but it's a distinct minority. You know, the medical profession is selected for people who are hyper-intellectual and really work ridiculous amounts of time. So they're kind of very focused on what they're doing in their world. And, and there's, I have to say, one of the disappointments of having been in academic medicine is realizing that yeah, while there are individuals who certainly doing, well, just so many people doing wonderful work. And for the most part, the vision is kind of tunnel vision. Not a lot of attention to either social global issues or spiritual issues, and again, with wonderful exceptions. Right, and and in the other uh, world that you travel in, um, 
Are you finding a blowback from people in the spiritual communities who would say um, that's all illusory and we shouldn't be in, involved and that we should be unattached from the uh, events of the world and the, the foolishness of, of human beings and focus exclusively on our, on our uh, growing uh, spirituality and our sense that uh, we are something uh, beyond these uh, personalities caught up in dramas and so forth. <laughs> Actually, I'd say I see more of the opposite side of that. Um, I haven't personally seen that much blowback about people saying, no, we, don't, we shouldn't fo focus on social global issues. We should just practice. There are always those people who you know, really just focus on practice. But I would say, if anything, what I've seen in spiritual communities is um, if we look at a, a balance or, uh, between going in inward for spiritual practice and cultivation and going outward for social con and global contribution. I, I sometimes feel concerned that communities get too lost into the, the social work side of it. As Mother Teresa said, we're not social workers. Well, you know, when the world is so troubled and there's an ocean of suffering and time may be short, it's very understandable that people would say would would focus uh, want to focus more and more of their efforts on on contempt uh, sorry on on contribution and social activism but uh i hate to see it at the cost of practice mm -hmm. and i'd be interested in your experience you interview a lot of people in this world well i think dennis and i would both agree that uh, there's been a, a a welcome shift uh, toward taking uh, seriously our responsibility as citizens, and and that it's you know we're it's not enough to to just uh, sit on the cushion and assume your good vibrations will heal all the troubles of the world, but that we are involved in the world whether we want to be or not, and so we should behave responsibly. But there is also um, the, the opposite, and I agree with you, there's a, a zeal on the part of many a karma yogi, so to speak, to change the world and neglect their own inner life and that right. renders them less effective than right. they might have been. Right. And they uh, probably end up uh, often in seeing one of your colleagues about burnout. <laughs> I, I, I want to just throw out here and, and maybe a final uh, question and comment for me, and that is that along those lines that uh, you were just saying, Phil and, and Roger, before you, uh, you know, the, the, to keep that the importance of keeping that balance and reading about Roger, uh, you are one of the more interesting people I've ever uh, encountered. And I've encountered, uh, especially on this podcast, a lot of very interesting people. Uh, your background is very diverse. First of all, you're an authorized Lama in Tibetan Buddhism. But along with that, you, uh, you've had uh, careers as a circus acrobat and <laughs> not long ago graduated from the San Francisco Comedy College and went on to an extremely brief, uh, and I won't say unsuccessful, but you, you said that. It was unsuccessful. <laughs> but just the fact that you, you have pursued that sort of thing and done that sort of thing. Uh, really impresses me because often people who discuss what we discuss 
other people look at and think you're living in some on some cloud. You are out of the no. You're you're very in there. Right? What what could be more on earth and and more solid and uh, than being a circus uh, a circus acrobat? Well, that wasn't so very tell us solid. A bit about was... how you managed to do all these things. Uh, well, uh, let's see. Well, first off, how did I manage to do all these things? First off, I've had a very fortunate life. I've been very blessed. I, you know, had all the blessings and privilege that come with uh, what the Tibetans would call a free and well-favored life, free of all the hindrances right. that can get in the way of right. way of one's spiritual practice and one's livelihood, and favored with all the circumstances that can allow one to proceed. And, and you know, I've worked hard at things uh, and uh, being fortunate with having, you know, meeting successes at various times. You know, one thing leads to another. I, you know, I, I think I would like to say I, I've been playing what, what I call the Buckminster Fuller game. And Buckminster Fuller, as you know, was one of the great creative inventors of our time. I think he had yeah. something like over a thousand inventions to his credit. The geodesic dome, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he, but in his youth as a young man, he had, uh, he was very, got very depressed and suicidal. I don't recall the details of it as I recall the, de the details of the story. He actually contemplated suicide at one point was standing on a bridge, just contemplating the possibility of throwing himself off. And he asked the question, what would make my work, what would make life really worth living? And the answer he came up with was the answering the question, how much good can one person do? And he's a perfect example of that. And so I think that's a, I just take that as a beautiful challenge. It's like, okay, we have this one precious life. How can we make the most of it? And how can we contribute most effectively? And it's been a, I, I take, he, he has been a wonderful inspiration, and I, which I, I just feel great about. So, yeah. So, so did you study doing stand-up comedy so you could reach more people? Then, well, actually, I thought it would be good for me because I was somewhat uptight and took life seriously. <laughs> it's great therapy. It's very well. Yeah, stand-up comedy. It's very difficult, and it really puts people through stuff. Yeah, it's funny that it came up because I I started watching this. We're recording this uh, on at the end of May, 2022. And there's a documentary about George Carlin airing right. on HBO. And it, I was watching it and it occurred to me that he was one of the funniest people ever and had a very big social impact because he, he, he addressed important issues in an ex extremely effective comedic way and probably changed a lot of people's thinking and, and mind. Yeah. So we'll look forward to you, uh, Roger, uh, doing that. In the meantime, one of the things... Uh, well, Phil, can I tell you one story? Yeah. I took that as a kind of inspiration. Could you use comedy right. to have an impact, social impact on people? So I did a routine, for example, on U.S. foreign policy. And after <laughs> I complete, completed my course, they, you know, they videotaped the presentation. I came home and showed it to my late wife, Frances Vaughan. At the end of my routine, there was this silence. And then she said, well, actually, you're more of a preacher than a comedian. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, 
you have an essay or an article online called Contributing Effectively in Times of Crisis. Um, a lot of people are asking those questions. We have a few minutes left. Um, can you give the listeners and viewers some uh, of the guidance that is in that article about how to discern the best contribution and how to go about it? Yeah, sure. Thanks very much for the invitation, Phil. Uh, well, the first thing is, uh, when we look at all the, any, any or all of the great issues we look at, the first reaction most people have is, oh, they should do this, or they should do that, or that, you know, someone should make that happen. But if you keep looking, it always comes back to the question, what can I do? That's where it always ends up, because that's the only place we can influence things. But there's, uh, there are a couple of other questions that go with that. That's a wonderful first start. And the second question is, what am I moved to do? Because each of us is, is, is affected most intensely by different kinds of suffering, and each of uh, us feels a passion about responding in certain ways. And we're much more likely to be effective and uh, endure if we go with our passion. So that's the second question. And then there's a third question. Not only what can I do, but what's the most strategic thing I can do? Given my circumstances, the people I know, the skills I have, what can I do that would really make a strategic difference? How could I trim tab and multiply my impact in some way? And then there's a final question, which is the, the big long-term one. How can I mold my life so as to be an optimal instrument of service? And that's a lifelong question. And it's important to know what kinds of questions these are. Because there are two very different kinds of questions. There are the usual questions, which are knowledge questions. Is it raining outside? Look out the window. End of question. But wisdom questions are more like cons. Every time we ask them, they have the potential for taking us deeper into the question, deeper into ourselves, and deeper into life. So these questions, what can I do? What am I moved to do? What's the most strategic thing I can do? And how can I mold my life to be a, an effective instrument of service? Those are wisdom questions, and they take time, and they keep bare repeated asking, and hopefully we'll be asking them for the rest of our lives. So those are questions for all of us you know, to sit with and be with, and, and the answers will change over time as we change over time. The answers will deepen as we de deepen. So, and the questions can deepen us and render us more effective. So, so that's the First thing I would say. Um, would you like some more? Or is yes. That... Yes. Right. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So there are several things that's really helpful to know if we to respond effectively. One is it's helpful to know, for example, how people respond in times of threat. And unfortunately, under threat, most of us regress psychologically. We become more egocentric. We become more tunnel vision, short-term thinking. What's in it for me? Will my family, etc. And that's you know very you know that's our kind of Paleolithic uh, and before conditioning. But so, and, but it's not very helpful for dealing with complex crises of the kind of magnitude and complexity we're dealing with. So then the question comes: 
is there a way we can help people not only not to regress, but to progress? And it turns out there are. If you give people three things, then they are much less likely to regress and more likely to respond effectively and contributory. The first thing is people need a context, a way of understanding the situation. So, for example, uh, with, with, oh, my God, we've got all these crises we're facing, yes. Well, one context would be, yes, civilizations always face, currently face crises. And, and what has worked in the past is for a group of a creative minority of people to, to acknowledge the crisis, to come up with creative solutions, and then to communicate to the larger community about, about them and bring them on board. So that's, a kind of, that's just one of many contexts or ways of understanding the crisis. Uh, the second people need, in addition to a context, is a purpose, something that something that could be done. So, so just pointing that something can be done. The third thing people people need is actually something concrete they can do, because the research is crystal clear. If people under uh, see a a threat that's facing a group or some uh, some, some like some like, then. If they can't see how to respond, they'll back off and it may even demean the victims. But if they have a way, they see a way that they can respond effectively and relatively easily, or, you know, then they're very likely to be contributory. So that shift, giving people some sense of understanding of what we're involved in. So it's not just, ah, oh. second, a purpose, like we can make a difference. And third, here's what each of us can do. That, uh, that is what enables people to actually contribute effectively and not regress. So that's, that's one, another thing. Very uh, good. Um, there's more. Can I, would you, how are we doing on time? Take, take the last couple of minutes and give our listeners the, the word. And this essay, all of this will have be, uh, uh, any, of, any of these articles, whatever, will have posted up as well as the interview itself. So, but go ahead. Sure. Well, I think the last thing I'd mention then is something that you are both very, very familiar with and your, your podcast has dealt with, and that is the practice of karma yoga. That is, if we need to cultivate ourselves to be more effective instruments of service, and if we need to be actively involved in the world, it would be really wonderful if there was a practice which could combine both. And as you both know, and as you both may popularize, there are these practices in the practice of karma yoga, the yoga which uses our work and action in the world. And when we do karma yoga, we go into ourselves, we go deeper into ourselves in order to go more effectively out into the world. And we go out into the world in order to go deeper into ourselves. And this is the cycle that uh, Arnold Toynbee, the great historian, found was characteristic of those people who had most impact on, on uh, human well-being that they had gone through this period of withdrawal into themselves for a period, wrestled with the great issues of life and their times, and then come back to share what they had. And so karma yoga, uh, the yoga of work and action in the world, really has a core place in my mind uh, to play in, in spiritual activists um, contributing effectively. And we need more, as many karma yogis as we can we sure do. We muster sure do. these days. 
We do. We do. And thank you for your role in, in fertilizing the ground. And, and, oh, no, and we, 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 do it for the, we do it for the money, Roger. <laughs> Where this podcast yeah. is a gold mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if only, right? <laughs> well, yeah. by the way, uh, we talked about your podcast. Please mention the name of it again. Yeah, thanks so much, Phil. It's Deep Transformation, Self-Society Spirit. Yeah, and uh, you can go to www, and we'll have this posted, dot, dot, deeptransformations.i as an, I as an igloo, o as an Oscar, so dot io, and uh, you'll find it there. We'll have all of this posted up, articles, whatever. It's been an absolute delight uh, having you on, Roger, and um, we, we have to do, this is part two of your interview series, so we're looking forward to part three. Well, so, thank you very much. There, been... Keep us on the air. <laughs> we are, our podcast is free and open to the public. Uh, we are not a nonprofit. You, people do not donate to us, but if they want to contribute, they can do that. And we uh, deeply appreciate it. And, and uh, we will continue. Thank you so very, very much. Thanks, thank Roger. You. Stay in touch and we'll uh, look forward to your ongoing contributions. Take care.